You're listening to Culture Matters, a podcast of the Village Church. This is Adam Griffin, and I'm here with my co-host, David Roark, today. Our usual producer for the show, Adam Hawkins, is out. And on this episode, David and I are going to have a conversation with Andy Crouch in studio about technology and how technology has an increasing potential to dehumanize us and separate us. So this is going to be a fantastic conversation. Andy will even bring up with us the potential end to technology as we know it. So stick around. Andy Crouch, who is at the Church for a Forum on TechWise Family tonight, we're actually recording this Friday afternoon before he speaks tonight, seems like the perfect guest for the topic we've got today. If you're not familiar with Andy, he's an acclaimed speaker, author, he's written books, and you've probably heard of some of these, Culture Making, Playing God, Strong and Weak, which was phenomenal, I can't highly recommend that enough, and most recently, The TechWise Family, which we actually had him on the show recently to talk through that book specifically, and that's why he's here for the Forum tonight. So Andy now serves... As a partner for Praxis, it's a creative engine and community dedicated to redemptive entrepreneurship. That is a mouthful, but it sounds incredible. Andy, <laughs> welcome back to the show. How are you doing? Thank you. It's great to be here, Adam. Thanks. Good. It is great to have you here. Today, we're talking about technology some more. We're joined by David, who thinks a lot on this topic. I'm excited for what mm-hmm. he's got to offer. I think I think a lot about it. <laughs> you sure do. And I've got, I mean, I brought my technology. My phone is on the table. I am, you know, I'm, I'm all in on this convo. But no, no. Th- when your phone is on the table, it means you're not all in. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Does that mean I'm distracted? Okay. Just wait till further in the conversation. You'll learn. Oh, is this where he's going to shame me? <laughs> yes. Okay. I actually thought about, man, if, if my kids, if I have to find somebody with my kids, could I bring them up and just put some Netflix on in the other room? And would Andy, would, would he cry? Would the TechWise family. Yeah, would, yeah. He, would he support More that? More in sorrow than in anger. Yes. yes. <laughs> so let's talk about dehumanization, <laughs> technology. Let's jump right in. In what way, Andy, kick us off. Yeah. When you say uh, when we say dehumanize and we connect yeah. that with technology, what does that even mean? That technology <laughs> would dehumanize someone? Yeah, I don't think all technology does this. I think there's ways to use technology that totally um, brings out what it is to be human in really good ways. But I have been thinking uh, recently about the ways that in some ways our technology gives us the, gives us the option to not be personal, to not mm. be persons. And uh, I was thinking about like the three great technological revolutions that our whole modern world is built on, which are money, Mm. engines, and information. So money is the financial revolution where wealth, um, which uh, for all of human history was... Uh, substance it was it was land really what if you were wealthy it meant you had land and yeah. the, fr- the fruit of land the produce of land um well through the invention of money we are able to liberate wealth from land and it becomes first these coins that human beings pass around but eventually just symbols like yeah. most i mean most of the money quote unquote that i have access to i don't even know where it is it's like a it's a <laughs> ledger it's imaginary <laughs> One we, don't even, we don't even think about it <laughs> right i think about it all the time <laughs> <laughs> so the interesting thing about this is that this allows me to use my wealth impersonally. Huh. So when I when wealth was land, you had to live on the land, work the land. You couldn't easily exchange the land for other things. But when I go to the convenience store and hand over my credit card, uh, or now just kind of wave my card in the general direction of the reader, <laughs> um, 
I don't have to have any personal relationship to get the good thing I want, my yeah. snack, from the convenience store. I don't. The, the person behind the counter doesn't know my name. I don't know their name. They don't know where I came from, where I'm going. And so it allows me to have this very powerful transaction, but a completely impersonal transaction. So then we have the Industrial Revolution, where work, which was always done by bodies, by human bodies and animal bodies, um, and thus always done personally, uh, we, we develop engines, and engines do the work for us. And now a lot of work is done without any person having to be involved or exert themselves. And in fact, we have to build these massive new um, structures that especially in the height of the Industrial Revolution are very impersonal, these factories that are really built for the machines. And human beings have to go in there and kind of tend the machines. But the, these vast machines are doing the work. And you think about how depersonalizing and dehumanizing the Industrial Revolution was. Mm. Then in the 20th century, we get the information revolution. And this is a revolution in knowledge where it, knowledge has always been about wisdom. It's been about passing on from person to person how, to, how the world works, how to act in the world. And once you have information, that can float free of persons. And if I want to know something, like, do I ask you or do I go to Google, which is this impersonal way of accessing information? I'll go to Google because it's reliable in a way that persons are not. <laughs> so I've been thinking about this layer. I don't think it's all of technology, but I, it's a really deep layer in our culture of what I would call a trade of personhood for power. That is, I, I'm not treated very much as a person uh, in a lot of my life. Like this morning, I flew down here on a plane. Pretty impersonal experience, honestly. Like you're loaded onto this silver tube, yeah. <laughs> aluminum tube. Um, and, and then, by the way, we add back just a little layer of personalization, which is is a technologically mediated way of pretending that we see you as a person. So as I'm getting on and I hand the person my boarding pass, uh, she says, thank you, Mr. Crouch, for flying with us. Mm. Now, we don't have an actual relationship, but that's just this moment of personalization that makes me feel like I'm not entirely alone in the world. Yeah. I am actually entirely alone <laughs> in the world at this moment. This person doesn't care about me. She's going to say that to the next person, right? So I am thinking about... Like, why, essentially, why the modern technological world is so lonely. It's because yeah. so much of what technology gives us is the opt-out of actual personal relationship. It, this sort of take this back, uh, uh, I guess you could say, higher level. This is just making me think about something. You know, I, I feel like my tendency or my default would be to say, in terms of like a theology of technology, would be like, technology is a gift from God, but humans being broken and sinful and evil are those who distort that. Hmm. But I, I'm even wondering the way that you're talking about technology is kind of changing the way that I think I think about that because it's not this inherently good or even neutral <laughs> thing, but maybe we, are you saying then that we do need to see some of technology as being inherently more problematic than, than helpful, not really, um, I don't know, what, not with a, a telos of human flourishing, right. but actually the, right. the the opposite of that? Is that <laughs> is that what you're saying? I'm trying to wrap my head around sort yeah. of that, that high-level idea of technology as it relates to this. I, I'm honestly still trying to figure out exactly what I think about this. But I, the one thing I know that I don't think technology is is neutral ever. Mm. I, in fact, I don't think anything human beings make is neutral. Um, because I actually think, first of all, the world itself is not neutral. It's good or very good, right? Yeah. It's, it's spoken to being with, into being with goodness. Um, and so our derivative creations out of God's creation uh, ought to be also very good. And I think when they're not very good, they're not neutral. They're very bad. <laughs> mm. So there is this, and I think there's a kind of oscillation in a way between the, the things actually that can be the best 
um, also can end up being the worst. Um, or the things that are most connected with flourishing, when they're misused, become the most dangerous idols, perhaps. So I tend to think that's what's going on with technology, but I do think it, you know, so much depends on like what your dream of flourishing is for which you invent the technology. Yeah. And, and I think the modern world and keeping in mind that like a couple billion people on this planet do not live in this world. They live in another cultural reality. That's not really modern. It hasn't gone through this financial industrial information revolution in any meaningful way. Um, and they live in traditional culture, which preserve it has its own idols and its own problems. Yeah. But our modern world was built on a picture of flourishing that really is about autonomy. Uh, it's the ability to get things done without depending on other people or God, which is what I get when I go in the convenience store, when I get in the airplane. I'm 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 not in any deep way to certainly depend on God. I don't feel that. In fact, the great uh, kind of feeling of being in the modern world is God's not really that relevant. Uh, mm. to my daily life because it's pretty much it pretty much works the plane went up the plane went down I, I didn't have to say a prayer for that to happen we engineered it right because we've got <laughs> engines and we've got information yeah and we've got money so um I I think that turn that we took in the West it was a very specific group of people at a particular time let's let's find a way to prosper without dependence on one another and God I think that maybe isn't neutral or good I think that could be the big wrong turn in the modern world can I, so dependence, I want to sit on that for just a second, because I think this is a fascinating aspect of technology and the things that you've brought up, the three kind of waves of that that you've brought up. There is a, a sense that I get when you look back at human history, you look at us now, when we invented technology, it's promoted as a way of improving our lives. It's yep. promoted, this is going to change everything for the better. Always. But what you see, and maybe this is not universally true, but it sure seems like what comes after a wave of improving things is a wave of new dependence on the things that we created. Ooh, yes. So you could take that from anything from the way I got here to avoid the worst traffic was to use my phone <laughs> as opposed to my um, experience in an atlas, although yes. there was a time where the atlas yes. was the new technology yes. and, the, yes, yes, yes. and uh, where now we have the, uh, you know, everything has a version of technology that maybe we forget, uh, whether it's a printing press that created a book, that that was a brand new technology, but then it became so dependent that it became archaic that we invented something new. I just wonder, and what you're talking about, if that connects us to a lack of of dependence on God the way that he's called us to, because we are always looking for something else to put our trust in that not that maybe it is a control idol for us to say, like, if I can do this, if I can create a tool that will do this for me, I don't have to seek the creator who gave me a relationship with him for it. Although maybe that's jumping too far ahead. Maybe that's too much. Well, I, you know, in one sense, I think God meant us to discover all these capacities of the world. Sure. So I don't really mind that we have GPS. I think that's a beautiful, like, it's an application, strangely enough, of, like, quantum mechanics and re- relativistic physics. I it's mean, it's, wonderful. It's stunning, right? And surely God, in some sense, intended for human beings to, to unfold that possibility. Uh, but I do think you're, I, I think you're onto something, that uh, we, we see these things as liberation. Yeah. But they end up creating new kinds of dependence, yeah. and I would say they end up creating new kinds of fragility. Yeah. Uh, because, uh, you know, the, the go-to example to me is the Carrington event of, I think it was 1867 and the 1800s, um, a massive solar flare um, uh, was ejected by a coronal ejection from the sun, crossed the Earth's orbit at the moment when the Earth was in that spot, and created this massive magnetic induction uh, in the atmosphere of the Earth. So uh, the northern lights were seen in, like, Kentucky, you know, like way south uh, in, uh, latitudes. And uh, there were telegraph operators in um, 
Boston and Maine, who this uh, induction happened through the the current in the wire, they were actually able to disconnect their telegraph from its power source and send message, messages to each other just with the current in the wire coming from the solar flare. Huh. And then it passed. That was the Carrington event. That was 1867. Okay. If that happens today, uh-huh. every semiconductor circuit in the world fuses. Just like fries. it melts. Huh. Your phone that got you here is a brick. Huh. These microphones start, stop working. The whole, every, all the power plants in the world that depend on transistors go out. Like yeah. it's the end of civilization, and uh, the national, the the uh, the White House or the executive branch of the government wanted to find out like how likely would this be to have the end of the world. <laughs> uh, so Give they, me a percentage yeah, shot. I seems important. <laughs> seems important. So this was in two thousand. I forget. I'm. I don't have the exact dates in front of me, but uh, order but We could use Google is, to find out what yeah, the exact exactly. dates we are. Could, okay. uh, as long as the current event doesn't happen in the next moment. Uh, so the, the, it was in the early 2010s. Uh, they, they went to the National Science Foundation and said, uh, can you assess the risk of a similar level of solar flare? I mean, these happen all the time, but sometimes they're really big, these mass coronal ejections. Sure. So the good news is uh, between now and 2022, or when the study was done, 2015 or so in 2022, there's only a one in eight chance of that. <laughs> Wow, one in eight. So your little revolver uh, that you're playing Russian roulette with, you know, there's only one bullet in it out of the eight chambers. <laughs> How do you feel? Uh, yeah. So wow. in in one way, we're so autonomous, like we're so yeah. liberated, and and all these things I think we should say are good, but it's also unbelievably fragile in new ways. Yeah. And and you even think about how cell phones um, have, in a way, they've made it easier to get uh, out of getting stuck like by the side of the road or something like that. But they've also completely eroded the norms where you would help people who were stuck by the side of the road. So we've yeah. traded being able to call for help with being able to trust that that the a random person would stop and would be on the whole trustworthy and would help. Yeah. And so social relationships get thinner. Our dep- it's not just our dependence on God, it's our dependence on, on one another. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That we're able to substitute technology for those things, but at the price of a kind of fragility that human beings have never known before. The stories used to be, and you hear this every once in a while, that when people talked about the future, it was more of a utopian picture. And in our generation, it's more of a dystopian <laughs> yeah. future. Yeah. And I do think there's a sense in which maybe this technology, maybe it's out of hand. But yeah. can we speak real quick about this dehumanization and the dependence you're talking about? Is there an aspect of that in which it is not new at all? This is Tower of Babel type stuff where we're, we're, we're going, or is do you really think this is a new and uh, growing out of control uh, version of chasing technology, chasing um, advancement. Right. It's not new, but it is new. And here's what I mean. I, I actually don't think that this is just what we've always done with our tools. Um, what technology is, the, the part of technology that's not new is the quest for magic. Okay. So magic is the idea that there's some secret to the world that I can deploy if I know the right, like, the secret code in a way to get the world to do things for me without me having to depend on God or other people. (laughs) Yeah. And, and see the tools we used to have, um, required us to be personally engaged. They required us to be personally present. And, and when you think about the idols of previous or of traditional culture today, they're really things that purport to do magic. They're things that purport to just work on their own. Yeah. Like this little figurine, if you worship it in the right way, will deliver either some blessing you want or some curse on someone you're, who's your enemy. And so there's always been the quest for magic. In that way, it's not new. 
And okay. and the the high middle or the sort of middle ages version of the quest for magic was called alchemy. And we forget that modern science came out of alchemy, the quest really? for the philosopher's stone. And what would the philosopher's stone do? It would turn anything into gold and it would give you eternal life. And that's the basic promise of idols, like uh, abundance without God and life without God. So in that way, it's not new, but but the difference is that the totally by accident, a few alchemists stumbled on things that actually work. Like <laughs> alchemy didn't work. It was a yeah. dead end. But our technology does work, yeah. right? But we invest in it the hopes that we used to invest in magic. Uh, and um, that is new. And yeah. And these things that we have now... They operate in that magical way, and they give us the delight of magic. Like, oh, it just works. And and that's what we want from the world, for it to just work without us having to depend or us having to invest. And in that sense, I think uh, this is a discontinuity, that not all people have had things like that that really worked that way. It was, yeah. it was false. So these th Magic didn't actually work. Um, but now it's, like, verifiable. Now almost. we have like, verifiable show magic. show you magic, yeah. Yes. Do you think we can kind of... <clears throat> just continue to sort of camp out here for a minute. I'm thinking about just the, the person listening to this. We've mentioned some like personal examples, but some of it's been high level too in terms of how yeah. technology has robbed like us. massive global <laughs> devastation. Yes, like yes. I'm kind of freaked out. I was just thinking about buying <laughs> oh, more canned goods on my way home. <laughs> yes, so, yeah. But what I don't want to happen is someone listens to this and they're like, oh man, like it, they walk away from it and don't think about how it actually applies to them uh, in the way yeah. that they live their lives. So let's, can we think about some example, other examples, sort of everyday examples of how technology is robbing us of our personhood, dehumanizing. One of the things I thought about, and we've talked a little bit about travel, but I've even thought, you know, more recently, this idea that <clears throat> with cars these days, with airplanes, you can sort of move from place to place. Families move from yes. place to place. Even yes. like within DFW, I know that. Yes. Wait, I mean, I've been married nine years, and I, I think we've lived in five different places. Uh, so you, you think still own all five of those? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I do. As the comm director, at the <laughs> just raking it in. Yeah, man, that's that's what we do here. Um, so uh, yeah, I've just thought about that too, and how technology has sort of taken away. This idea of being rooted in a community yes. and and being known in a community, yeah. whereas now you don't really. I mean, it's one. It's just kind of hard. Once you do root in a community, it's hard to get to know your neighbors. It's hard yeah. to even like yes. do something there. Even but then, if you wanted to, yeah. Even if you wanted to, to, it's hard. Yes. And so thinking about the fact that most of the time we we don't want to and we don't try to. Yeah. That, that that's one example I can think of that maybe hits home for people. But yeah. I'm just trying to think of other. I think that's a good example where you might know more about. Uh, a guy you went to high school with's dog and what he did today because of social media <laughs> than you do about your next door your neighbor. Neighbors, and you absolutely. haven't seen that guy in 20 years, but now, yes. but your neighbor, you have no impetus to see him. It's like you're filling your tank with this meaningless knowledge about people far away, and it's preventing you from connecting with wow. people next door. Wow. I think uh, maybe another example just to pick up on this kind of thing, David, would be um, kind of the misuse of our technologies of communication. So, so basically like we should adapt our use of technology to the things it's actually good for and avoid using it for things it's not good for. That's good. So I have no problem texting my wife about logistics, like just planning and, you know, getting stuff on the calendar, who's getting the milk. I, I don't think this is like some violation of being human. It's but, not inherently you know, evil. <laughs> that we don't sit down, <laughs> stare into one another's eyes and say, how many gallons? <laughs> <laughs> right? But we know we're, we're tempted to try to do real 
relational work over these very thin channels of those little green or blue bubbles um, that are only hold like kilobits of information, not nearly enough to have a real Mm. conversation. And, uh, and yet, uh, you know, Sherry Turkle, who studies especially how young adults use technology at MIT, um, She's documented how, how especially the, the emerging generation for whom this is like the most natural way of communicating, they prefer to communicate over text message yeah. about everything. I mean, up to and including like breaking up with someone. Cowardice. Um, yeah. Well, it feels like cowardice, but what, what it really is is control. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and it allows me to control the message I send rather than have a face-to-face conversation where I'm not fully in control and also have to deal with this other person and how they may react in ways I certainly can't control. So... Yeah. There's lots of ways in which we're tempted to take the easy route mm-hmm. uh, in our relationships with people rather than choosing the hard thing. And it's almost like now we have to choose it to be embodied, to be present, to stay present. So another big idea I picked up from Sherry Turkle is the seven-minute rule, the seven-minute rule of conversations, which is for about seven minutes you can kind of fake it in a conversation. <laughs> and you can talk about the weather or you know the, the expected topics. But at the seven-minute mark, you run out of easy things to say, and it's at that moment in Sherry Turkle's lab that people pick up their phones. Wow. When otherwise someone ha- would have to take a risk, someone ha- would have to ask a question they don't know the answer to, volunteer something that's up. one level yeah. more, exactly, one level more personal. And it's at exactly that moment that we all kind of instinctively pull the phone out of the pocket and avert our gaze and yeah. kind of signal, I'm not going past the seven-minute mark with you, so let's keep this shallow. Yeah. And the one thing I wouldn't want people to miss too, that this conversation, like, I think most people will listen and say, this is important stuff, but I think it's good to say that this is a discipleship issue. Like, (laughs) and I've heard this and I kind of base this on an example or a definition of the discipleship that you've used before, Andy, when you talk about becoming a disciple is becoming human again and and then helping other people become human again. And so when we're doing things like this, it, that runs very contrary to the the mission that God's called us to, wow. you know. So you have that, and that's and that's also just wrapped up in the Imago Day and being created in the image of God. And yeah. so this is a, a threat to to the Imago Day. And so I just want people to hear that and yes. know that, but and not just think, oh, this is this is important. I should probably you know spend less time on my phone. But it's like, no, this is actually, you know discipleship is at stake here, right? Absolutely. Well, and that connects yeah. so well with what you talk about in TechWise family and why you're you're here at the village to talk about these things, because you're talking about discipling your family when you're talking about why we have limits and rules and obligations when it comes to our technology. You're talking about how do we enter in to train up our kids. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about that connection of dehumanization that you don't want to insert itself into your family when it oh, comes man. to technology? Well, so, you know, the family is where we all begin the journey of becoming human. Uh, now it's not where our journey ends because we're all called into this bigger family in a way called the church. Um, and there's other formative environments too, like school and so forth. But the family is fundamental as the place it's, it's the school of being a person. (laughs) And the moment you were born, you looked for a face that would look at, look you in the eye, lock eyes with you, tell you who you were, tell you your name. And then the rest of life in family from birth to death is about what is it really to be a person? And, you know, one way this disciple, I mean, so it may sound very trivial, like, do I text about this or not? 
But but at the end of life, this becomes totally non-trivial because now most Americans end their lives not surrounded by their family, uh, cared for in the home where they've lived, but plugged into all these machines, which are very, talk about dehumanizing, what it's like to be in that kind of end of life, medicalized care, when the last thing you need is another machine in your life. You, you, there's a point in all, all of our lives we'll reach, if we uh, reach a natural old age, where the machines will be useless, and what we'll need is other people. But what if you've spent your whole life, like decades, not relating to each other, avoiding pain, not knowing what to say when things were silent? How are you going to handle that last chapter of life? And so you know, this is what family's meant to hold from birth to death, is what it is to be human, what it is to be a person. And if we aren't practicing at home, I think, uh, every day in the small things, like just when we're feeling a little sick or when we're a little annoyed with each other, how will we handle the cataclysmic moments of our lives? We won't be ready. Mm. And, and people aren't ready. And, and so they, they end up in hospitals plugged into machines when they should be at, at home surrounded by a family that knows how to care for someone at the end of life as well as the beginning of life. So how does a, how does a pastor, how does a leader, how does a Christian uh, prepare or practice something, it's not huh. just as easy as say, well, just turn your phone off, and then all of a sudden <clears throat> you're able to uh, become more human. Yeah. What is the positive movement? What is? Uh, what yeah, would you yeah, instruct people yeah. to say, well, no, start doing right. this? Is it just have conversations that you look at your clock and go, hey, have, we're going to talk for the next 30 minutes, because if I get past seven, we've done it. We're like, <laughs> well, exactly. I have to turn off we're my phone, and we're going to do this. So... I mean, it, certainly it's not just about turning off your phone, but I would say it kind of is like that's, that's start. the first step. Yeah. And then what are the things you do once that device is not available? And I would extend it beyond the phone to take a walk instead of riding in the car, um, light candles instead of turning on the electric lights. Like, like literally think about all these layers of um, sort of easy stuff and, and get rid of them. And then what do we do? Once those things are gone, well, the first thing is we feel terribly anxious. So then you have to sit with that, and then you get past the anxiety, and the other thing you end up with is boredom. You get, I mean, boredom and anxiety are strangely related, I think. And on the other side of boredom and anxiety is creativity and, uh, and, and openness. And so I, I don't want to rush to specify exactly what you should do, but there's something you'll do once you don't have the option of the easy thing to do that will probably lead you toward a better a better relationship with another person, with God, a more fully human way of being in the world. Um, and, you know, I, I use all these devices, uh, but I turn yeah. them all off too. And, and I have seasons of my life where they're off. And it's in those seasons that most of the fruitful, formative experiences of my life have happened. Can we speak more about that for just a minute? So you have these devices. We use them. We're not saying that technology is inherently evil, that I, I can see your phone from where I'm sitting right now. This is not— <laughs> It a, is in airplane mode. Is I'll it, let you know. Uh, okay. Mine's on Do Not Disturb. <laughs> I don't know. It's not hypocrisy, though, for you to carry that and to no, believe the things you're saying. So how do you use these things redemptively? What is a way that you would say it's not inherently evil to have a cell phone or to have electric lights in your home? To watch Netflix to or watch Hulu Netflix. Or okay. Well, like maybe that. Mm, that might be well, one step too far. On, depending on the evil. show. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to me, Sabbath is such a helpful principle here. A rhythm. Okay. A rhythm of use and non-use, and a and a rhythm. Of, I mean, I, I again, I don't think they're neutral or bad. I think they're good uh, fundamentally. But they're not good if they replace being a person. And so Sabbath is this discipline that we practice as individuals, families, ideally entire communities, where one day a week, 
but also in the biblical uh, context, this was one year every seven. No work was done. Like, and this is pre-technological. This is just our human ability to find satisfaction and significance in work. And God says, you know, one year out of seven, one year, you're not going to work. Um, and then every 49 years, you're going to have like a double Sabbath. Uh, and so if you have this rhythm in your life, I think it's much harder to become de- addicted and dependent. Uh, and you can use these things f- you, you can use these things for the good that they're meant for, but not end up being used by them or limited good. or reduced to them. I like that. Use them, but not end up being used by them. That's excellent. Yeah, one sort of question maybe we can end on. I'm just it, I'm thinking about it. I don't have an answer to it. Maybe you guys can kind of help me think about it. But would it be true to say, as I've listened to this conversation, I'm I, I'm just I'm reflecting on it, and I'm thinking about technology and our culture. It's almost as if Christians <laughs> have the the answer on how to view technology correctly because the world has sort of you have this idea of progress mm. and that a lot of people buy into that you know the more technology we have right. the better life is going to be and we're you know we're sort of working toward progress hmm. then you have those who are more of the all natural organic this right. nostalgia yes, for, yes, for the yes. past but it seems like Christians have a different category right like we like a we, timeless truth yeah and, and we and we know that we are you know there is a kingdom being built so there is a sense of progress right but not the kind of progress maybe that popular culture would think of and we can see things in the past that have been good and and you know maybe reclaim some of those things but we can also look at the past and say hey there was sin there was evil in the world technology was being used to dehuman dehumanize you know 100 yeah. 100 years ago as well so it's not like we yeah. need to go back there necessarily so yeah. is that true am i am i am i on to something there and i'm not saying that in like a prideful oh we we got it right you know yeah. as christians yeah. but it does seem like christianity affords a category and an understanding of technology that seems good, right, and healthy, and, and as it should, right? But So that's not really a novel idea, but it's just maybe worth reflecting on here. I don't know. Yeah, I like that. I, the way I might put it, um, rather than that we have an, the answer or, a, or the perspective, is it's more like we have a clue. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's this mystery. What is it to be human? And, and we've been given this massive clue, you could say, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is the most human, be, the most human being that's ever been, mm. who incidentally lived entirely without, without technology and lived a fully flourishing life without any of the stuff that we feel very attached to. And, and we have this clue for how to approach it. But how you really play that out and realize that in history, I think in a way it's up to us to follow the clue. And it's not so much that we know now how to handle all this stuff. It's that we have the, the, the like little seed of an idea of a better way than either that progressive kind of vision of history that's just getting better and better or that nostalgic vision. And we have a clue of another way, but we all have to figure this out because uh, this is a very new thing in, in human society, really. And, and we are just figuring it out. And Christians could be the ones with the clue to the most human way to respond. I think that's right. Andy, that's so – I mean – I could spend another hour or two talking about this. I have questions about some of the stuff you said that I, I'm not sure if I agree with you on all of, of course, it, which is great too. And there's some other aspects of it that I'm like, man, that's that's something I need to chew on and probably come back to, which probably means this is going to be a discussion worth having and worth posting to start talking more about this. If if somebody wants to know more about these thoughts, where would you recommend they go next? Is there something you're putting out or have put out or someone out there that you would say, hey, read this, think about that as we conclude? 
uh, well, if you could wait a couple years for the next book, I'm going to try to write a book about some of this <laughs> okay. stuff. Uh, but I did already write this book, The TechWise Family, which we mentioned. And I do think uh, Sherry Turkle is really helpful reading for one slice of this. Uh, okay. Her book, Reclaiming Conversation, her book, Alone Together, are just foundational reading uh, for kind of where we are. And she has a very beautiful way of looking at where we are. I love that. That's great. So, uh, Take two years of doomsday prepping and then get out and read Andy's book. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if the world is still here. <laughs> yes, if we're still around and books are still a thing, you can check it out in a couple of years. Andy, thank you so much for your time today. We yeah, really thanks, appreciate Andy. it. Thank you. If there's anything you heard on the show that you'd like to know more about, you can find details on our website. Today's episode was produced by David Roark and edited and mixed by our good friend Joshua Stevens. Our next episode, we'll be talking about comedy, satire, and the Christian life with our special guest, the head writer from the Babylon Bee. So that should be a ton of fun. We'll see you next time. God bless, and thanks for listening.